This is the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. This is where it all counts. This is why we're here. This is why each one of us are here. And now, here's your host. Welcome back to another edition of the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. I am Paul Pertichese, and joining me as always is Mr. Matt Caraccio. Matt, welcome. Paul, I again, as we kind of navigate the landscape that is the incredible analysts out there in our space and we continue to look deeper at this class it's hard to it's hard to really set the stage for the gentleman that we're having on this evening this is probably one of the people that got me into understanding prospects exploring the world of evaluation honestly i'm just humbled to have him on the show paul i just just bring him right in there's not enough words to say yeah, absolutely. If there was official S to S standings in terms of who's made the most guest appearances on our show, I believe this man is at the top of the leaderboard. You know him all. His name is Mr. Matt Waldman. Matt, welcome back to the Saturday to Sunday football podcast. Oh, man. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to this podcast every year and i always am excited when you guys contact me as i'm doing the rsp and i'm thinking this is one of the podcasts that i'm always i mean like i enjoy getting to do a lot of podcasts and i'm very thankful for that but i know that the kind of work that you guys do individually and also the the format that you do when it comes to interviewing guests and what it is that you're interested in is just so in my lane and and I love having the conversations that we do. So thank you again for having me on. Absolutely. It's our pleasure. We look forward to it every single year as well. So let's get right into it. And before we start talking about some players, I know Matt and I are always very intrigued about your process. Any behind the scenes, how you have evolved, changed your process for this past year now obviously you just finished this beast released you know last week can you give the listeners maybe some ideas in terms of how you maybe changed the, the process this year a little bit as you continue to evolve what you do and how you interpret things and evaluate prospects so i'm probably not going to put this in the most kind or, or nicest words that i should but the rsp went to duke's fat camp Okay, it basically it lost a good bit of weight, and instead of being an eight, seventeen eighteen hundred pace, um, you know, page behemoth, it came in at just under eleven hundred pages, and that's because I stopped doing play by play write ups. I've been I did that when I started the RSP in two thousand six because I wanted to, I needed to do that in order to learn more and more nuance about the game. And it got to a point where there were diminishing returns, where I wasn't able to get as many prospects I wanted to evaluate, and I wasn't getting the same amount out of it. So I I decided that I was going to stop doing that. I was worried how people would think about it, but everyone was telling me, you're crazy. Don't worry about it at this point. You're, you're good to go. It's a nice little exercise to maybe tr- transcribe every single play I see um, on a player every once in a while. But I've been doing this for you know nearly 15 years, so that's not a big deal. That's changed. Um, I've also added in charting for quarterbacks, accuracy charting for quarterbacks. And I've been, and so because I've been able to watch more games than ever, I was able to chart a lot of games and do a lot more in terms of looking at range of the field that they're, that they're throwing to, as well as on script, off script versus pressure, um, without pressure, on platform, off platform, mobile, you know, and, and those types of different dynamics. And it helped me be able to develop a little more solid footing for the grades of how I grade accuracy. And that was eye opening. And then 
I'd say more than anything, I'm starting to define a little bit more certain things that I want to do with quarterback decision-making. I'm starting to feel like that I'm, I'm getting a handle on what I want to put out there in the coming years and how it's going to be graded and defined. Um, added some more different um, ways to split out running backs and how their roles and how to grade that um, in a way that I could come up with a depth of talent grade. And then probably last but not least, this coming year, I think I'm because I've veered away from more of my old database format and use more of this depth of talent format, just from a behind the scenes inside baseball perspective, I'm hoping that I'll be able to really cut down the amount of time I have to write this book in March based on how I'm going to grade and write things up throughout the year. And if that happens, then my editors, bless them, will probably not have to work so hard in such a compressed period of time to untangle the mess of my drafts when I'm trying to power write this thing in the span of a month. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I think I speak for everybody out there that I, I think tr- taking it to fat camp, as you kind of put it, um, in, in no way, shape or form is anything that I feel uh, was necessary. I kind of echo the same things. We love everything that you put into it because I think it's the kind of display of the process that it, it connects us so much to the actual product itself. So uh, that being said, though, I can completely understand where you're talking about streamlining the process. And it's something that, you know, as Paul and I are, are going through this kind of in the nascency, you know, the nascency of our own kind of world of understanding of this, it is really a big part of it. So as we kind of get into positional groups, and I know you talked about, you know, quarterbacks in particular and some of the the elements that you were able to bring to the table, I, maybe if we could, could we maybe start out with wide receivers tonight? And oh, I was yeah. wondering, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, and I thought like maybe if, if you wouldn't mind, like, would you mind starting out first by taking us through, was there anything different this year about wide receivers that we should know about in terms of the process that you followed? And then you have to talk about Hakeem Butler because it's it's obviously widely known that you've been very kind of on top of him being your highest ever graded. And that to me, when knowing your background, knowing the extent and time you've spent doing evaluation over a number of years, that's pretty high praise. So I want to, I was wondering if you can dig into that prospect in particular, and then we could kind of dig into the weeds and maybe find some guys that, uh, that, that deserve a vaunted heralded call, but haven't necessarily gotten it throughout this process as well. I hear you. Um, you know, certainly, in terms of the process, not much has changed this year, but there are things that there are notes that I've been kind of looking at over the years that I see where that can change on the horizon. So for me, some of the tracking things I want to look at are better or more accurate tracking for types of missed targets, whether it was a pinpoint pass and dropped, whether it was pinpoint and dropped after contact, whether it was a generally accurate throw where they had to make an effort to catch, but it was deemed catchable and whether it was defended and and talk about how the passes were defended. And then maybe I could track more of that data down the line. Um, so those were things that I thought that might be kind of interesting. And then maybe even separate. Um, I have separation as a, as a skill category and maybe break that down into ranges of the field so that I'm not just looking at deep separation, but also maybe intermediate and vertical the way that I same thing I do with quarterbacks so that we can pinpoint more like this guy. No, he's not a DK Metcalf deep threat. um, Who's going to be able to take the top off the defense and, you know, and get behind a safety when he gets a free runway. But maybe he's a guy that like Keenan Allen 
you know, if if you're inside the 30, he's going to be money for you, you know, and you're going to be able to target him up the sideline inside the 30 um, or inside the 25 because that's all the separation. He's going to be quick off the draw and get that kind of separation for you. So if I can kind of delineate that a little bit more, then that allows me to be able to give different categories of things in a way that now we're looking at these players with greater nuance and they can be rated based on their roles a little bit more and not based on this broad-based assumption that one receiver is one size fits all with all of this stuff. Um, because we all know that's not true. And the problem is trying to figure out how to define that. So, you know, and that's one of the things that I talked about with um, Hakeem Butler. So we can talk about that if you want, you know. So Well, yeah, no, no. And and just as we get into Hakeem Butler, it's something that I've I've just been musing on just at the wide receiver position that I would love to just ask your professional opinion on. I wondered, and I, and I posed this in the last, uh, in the last podcast, I said something along the lines of, do you think sometimes we're a little too cavalier with slotting receivers as slot receivers outside the number receivers? Do we get a little bit cavalier in that nature when we're doing some of our rankings without maybe fully understanding or not fully understanding, but fully uh, giving respect to the, problems that they saw in college like if all you did was play outside the numbers that perception of the field and that way that you're seeing the field is going to be very different than the types of problems in the landscape of problems you're going to see when you're in the slot to, to, do you think that has any merit i don't know to what degree but i'm just wondering is that a question worth asking i think it's very much a question worth asking because you have to think about really what this player is used to doing if he's not good at diagnosing things on the outside very well pre-snap then how's he going to get be better at that if you just stuck him in the slot because you just didn't like his athletic profile for the outside? And I think that that's something where that can get a little too cavalier sometimes, and there's just not enough thought um, based on that. But it is interesting, you know, that you talk about that. I mean, when we talk about Hakeem Butler and and just kind of this whole idea of how things have changed, you know, I mean, I think one of the reasons why I had Hakeem Butler ranked so high is that it, it, a lot of it has to do with my rankings. I mean, you have to think about the fact that I'm, you know, we're all ranking like seven, 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 prospects at a time. And NFL teams are ranking eight, nine, 10, 12 guys because they've said, you know what? We need a flanker or we need a split end or we need a guy who can play some slot, but he can also split them out the flanker if we need to. We need a guy who's a big slot who can do a little more blocking like a tight end as if he's on the wing as opposed to being a small slot guy. And so when you start seeing how teams filter naturally how they're going to look at the player pool, then you start to realize that a guy like last year who I like, Dante Pettis, well, yeah, I had him rank my number one receiver. But it's probably because more than anything, not because he was just good and I liked how good he was and appreciated the things that I study, but my my scoring system is going to be broader in terms of like, it's going to favor versatility. It just naturally faces versatility because I'm trying to look for, are they good route runners? Are they good at these different things? And I'm looking at a broader spectrum of that where maybe if anything, it might push down slot receivers a little bit who aren't going to be guys who separate deep, you know, because that's not their role. Um, but, or that, you know, or that they don't have to face, um, press coverage on a regular basis. So those things automatically may deflate them unless they can play both inside and outside and show those skills that outside receivers normally do and have that kind, or they play in an offense where they can play more speed. So when you start looking at Hakeem Butler versus some of the other players in this class, Hakeem Butler 
did some work in the slot and showed some of that quickness and ability to bend that makes it, that makes him, that's really like fundamental to excellent route running that he can drop his weight like that and decelerate so well or flip his hips well. So when you have that and he can do that like a small man and run whip routes like that, as I've often talked about, then that makes him a guy that sets up the rest of the route tree. So you know he's going to be able to learn that because he learned the hardest part of running a break, and he can ex- and he executes that so well. And then you also see the examples of him being able to use multiple moves at the line of scrimmage in terms of you know rips and chops and arm overs and swipes and swats and and then th- comparing that with his um, footwork movement, different foot fires and different types of a rocker step and a three step and a four step and all those different types of things. And you say, is he always successful with it? No, but he has the vocabulary and he is successful with all these different vocabularies at different times. So all of that works in, in a way where you start seeing that because he can run routes, because he can separate, because he can catch against contact, because he, he shows skill where he breaks multiple tackles in the open field and he's a good runner and he's got promises a blocker. Well, he suddenly, you know, while I look at depth of talent, all these, there's depth to each of these things that he's doing. So naturally he ends up being one of the highest players I've grabbed. I've, I've um, um, graded at that position. It turned out he was, um, you know, at least in this depth of talent, which is I think four or five years old now. So I'm sure there were players before him that if I had the sophistication of means to like evaluate them and on a level that I could show that depth, um, maybe they would have challenged him, like you know Calvin Johnson. <laughs> but I was just doing. I was at that time. I was just scoring players based on can they do these basic things and how good were they? And there was too much, a lot, a little too much. Like, yeah, he's really fast. He's really tall. So I'm probably awarding him like triple bonus, you know, and inflating <laughs> him because he was tall and fast and, and, and all that kind of stuff and really didn't have a defined criteria to say, listen, you know, cause we're guilty of that. And, and if you don't have a process, it's easy to look at someone who's really tall, really fast, jumps really high and end up inflating what they did because you, you're like, yeah, he can catch, but because he can leap and catch, that's even better because he's really fast and going to get the separation. That's really better. And suddenly you're like giving him bonus points that he didn't deserve because of his athletic ability. And so, yeah, for Mark, for, for um, Butler, absolutely earned what, what he got in this particular evaluation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the whole Butler, uh, this trajectory during this pre-draft season has been a fascinating one for Butler with people, you know, at the, at the high end, in the middle, some people a little bit down on him. It, it, it's going to be interesting to kind of see, uh, how he performs, where he ends up, the immediate opportunity. It's going to be fun to follow that. I want to transition to two prospects who I kind of feel like, you know, one of them has been a little bit out of sight, out of mind, besides you bringing them up on occasion on on your podcast or another podcast and Matt and I talking about them. I feel like Stanley Morgan Jr. has been flying under the radar. Matt and I watched him last summer and we both came away really impressed, offering that versatility to play the flanker position, to play inside, really good route runner. I thought one of the better route runners from last summer when we were watching him, stunned when he wasn't at any of the All-Star games. I don't know if he was invited to any. That That's always been a question that I've been wondering. 
And then also another guy who I really feel like has been just completely forgotten is Riley Ridley. And part of that is the metrics people don't like him because he didn't, like you just talked about, run fast, uh, jump high. And the production people, market share, and that didn't really love him because Georgia, you know, didn't put up, you know, really glorious passing stats. And he was just a part of their team effort. And he's going a little bit under the radar. And these are two guys that I know Matt and I like a lot. And we feel like they're not really getting their just due. Where do you stand on Riley Ridley and Stanley Morgan Jr.? Yeah, well, Riley Ridley is fun because, I mean, he's he's just outside my top 12, but not far away. And he earned a grade at, at the level of being a, a literally a contributor or a rotational starter. Someone who, if... If you put him in right now, he's going to produce for you in a in a certain role that plays to his strengths. And his strengths is route running, getting open, you know, at the perimeter, inside, um, you know, and he may not be the guy. We may not know how good he is at one-on-one 50-50 type of throws that he's going to be, tar- you know, targeted as like a primary guy. But he's going to be able to find the open zone. He's going to run the timing routes in rhythm. He Just like Hakeem Butler. When you can take that one long drive step to set up your drop of your weight and you can do it so efficiently the way Riley Ridley does, people may who who may study the numbers or study the production metrics, they may look at that and go, well, he just runs the same route. You know, what's that going to tell us? What's that really going to tell us about that he runs the same route? Well, it's kind of like basically what you're saying is that he executes the hardest technique in the route tree that translates to every, pretty much every difficult route in the route tree, and he does it better than just about everybody else on on this draft board. Um, so that's a very important aspect of that. And you also see that he is quick enough. You know, his speed isn't great, his top end speed, but you're looking him to be an intermediate range route runner. You know, kind of in that from the line of scrimmage to about thirty yards. If you get him in that range. He's going to get separation for you. And at four five eight, if you run in a four six, four six five, I would even bet that if you have separation in the first ten to fifteen yards, you're going to hold that guy off for thirty to forty yards, maybe even longer, um, depending on just how closer you are to four five five compared to four six five. And he's at four five eight, so he's a guy that's going to hold a guy off for long enough there. Now the the difference is 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 a quarterback going to be wanting to throw and target to him in tight coverage when he doesn't have deep separation? The answer is probably not unless they've developed a great deal of trust. Um, But is he going to get open and get plenty of separation in that first 10 to 15 yards on the routes that really they're going to use him for? Absolutely. So I think he's a sound possession threat who has hints of being a little bit more downfield. Um, He kind of reminds me of guys like Robert Woods or Brandon Lloyd or Chad Johnson who – there's a little bit more like when they go into the air, especially Lloyd and Johnson, they kind of hang in the air a little bit. Whether that's an illusion or not, it just kind of it kind of they kind of have that feel with their timing of being able to go up for the pass at the right moment. So it seems like that they've been up longer than the other guy when they've actually just left a little bit later, maybe, um, and and continue to be on the trajectory upward when the other guy's going down. Um, so you have that. Then there's Stanley Morgan. Stanley Morgan Jr. is probably my favorite player in this draft class, um, and, and just flat out. And and it's not because I think he's the best. It's just because he, you know, you watch him just like you. I watched him this summer, 
And I thought, oh, this is going to be one of the top prospects in the class. Like there, there's no doubt to me after watching like four games of his, like you said, he can run routes. He has really good hands technique in terms of how he catches the ball. If it, if he doesn't catch it cleanly because he's used the correct technique, he gets second chance opportunities to catch it. And then he's just like, he's quicker than you expect. He has more acceleration than you would expect. Maybe if you're not, you know, if you're not someone who's keen to be able to see that, and it's hard to see that on tape. So I watched him and it seemed to me that he was always getting separation, you know, and that he was able to get deep on some players and that he was able to go up and make contested plays. I love the physicality of his game. And when you watch him block, he gets into people early on in the game and you can tell that they're not used to someone who's their size or even a little smaller um, manhandling them, and they get angry. Like defenders get angry with him because he gets uh, he he gets in there and plays with that effort so easily. And so when I looked at all that, he kind of reminds me of the classic AFC North wide receiver. You know, the guy who you know the the old Heinz Ward type. You know, who who or a Keenan McCardell who who was going to be kind of gritty, who was going to be someone who could work the possession areas, but also could get deep with the help of play action or with a little deception um, and occasionally just beat someone one-on-one. And so I, I really love that about his game. And I too was surprised that he didn't get any invites whatsoever. And when you look at that, that the, just the metrics of his, his acceleration and his short um, shot and his, his, his metric. Uh, let's see his, his acceleration and his three cone drill. Th- there are only like two players in like the top thirty of my board who were who were as good or better than him. I mean, like he he was quicker and has more acceleration than than Debo Samuel, and everybody goes nuts over Debo Samuel for that exact reason. And he's he has better acceleration and he's got better change of direction quickness, you know. And then and then you look at somebody else who like who was high up there. Miles Boykin might be the only guy who's like better. And he was like the true combine wonder this year. And Stanley Morgan were just like, well, he didn't get invited to any post-draft stuff, except he did go to the combine. So the fact that he ended up at the combine, somebody knows what's going on. So I I think he's going to end up getting drafted in the mid rounds or maybe the fifth or sixth round at worst. And he'll work his way up. He's going to be a good player. So let's ride that point if you could. Let's ride the whole point about Miles Boykin because I heard you mention him. He was going to be the next guy off the tip of my tongue was Miles Boykin. I mean, he was a player that I can remember back when he was at Notre Dame. I think it was, man, I want to say it was his sophomore year. He popped. I mean, he's popped along the way and he's popped along the way in the sense that throughout games that we've seen him in, you know, he has made contested catches. He has made those situations where, you know, along the sideline, body control, everything that you want to see from a big six foot four kind of 220 pound receiver. He did a lot of that at Notre Dame. I I mean, I would be lying if I say I wasn't caught off guard by his athletic testing, at least in terms of what I saw at the combine. And when you put that all together in terms of the player and who he is on the field, how did you feel about him, Matt? What did you think about Miles Boykin? Because he certainly was, I don't want to say he came out of nowhere, but he definitely kind of played peekaboo with everybody here because he certainly wasn't a guy that we were all clamoring for in the summer. Yes. And I think that part of that is, is I know when I watched him, he was in my top five all year. And I don't, you know, post my rankings that way because I anticipate that with the athletic testing, it's going to change dramatically. But I, I kept writing. I remember writing after every report that I did on him was like, 
if he shows if he shows the speed and quickness and acceleration that that it looks like he might have if he you know and that's the hard thing to tell is he a possession receiver or is he actually as quick as he looks for being a big man i just can't tell you know it, that's our thing to tell and then when he just blew the doors off the combine the way that he did and then you go back and look at the tape a little bit more you go you know what yeah he's getting deep on people these routes that he's He's break, you know, that it explains his ability to break back to the ball and run these comebacks the way he does or the curl routes that he does um, or make the first man miss in the open field as, as easily as he does with just one cut, you know. And and when you start to look at it from that standpoint, you realize, yeah, this guy's the real deal because he he's technically sound. He's physical. He has, a, you know, he has upside in terms of learning more techniques um, he has the the good route running techniques down, similar to like Riley Ridley. Not as good as that, but you know, certainly for a two hundred twenty pound man at six four to to be able to make the drive step and drop his weight and come back to the ball as quickly as he does against tight coverage, not guys who were scared, you know, out of their mind to play him, you know, to play way off of him. That also was a nice thing, and so you start to look at all of that and you think to yourself, what if he had a really good quarterback, you know? What if you had a really strong quarterback like who was an NFL draft prospect throwing to him? We might have been he might have been like the people would talk to him as maybe he was the top guy on the board. Is it, you know, is it DK Metcalf or Miles Boykin as opposed to what we're hearing, you know, what we've been hearing um, in most outlets? Yeah, I mean, it, it's been it's been interesting. Boykin is one of those guys who I remember Matt telling me about him years ago that, you know, Notre Dame has this guy and, you know, and then, you know, you kind of just sometimes watch these guys and, you know, the quarterback play at Notre Dame did him no favors for, for quite some time. You know, I don't think, as, as, as Matt mentioned before, like he did some peekaboo for some people at the Combine. And if he was playing with at Oklahoma or he was playing in lots of other places, he wouldn't have been doing peekaboo. He would have been way more of a national known, you know, person in terms of, you know, everyone would have known who he was and what what about his game really stood out. So he's another one of those guys. I'm fascinated to kind of see where he lands on draft night. I feel like he probably makes his way into the top 100. I mean, he's like you said, going back to the simple terms, he's big, he's tall, he's fast, he can jump. So I find it hard to believe that that doesn't get him drafted somewhere on night two. So I think that's going to be fun to watch. So let's close out the wide receiver position before we transition to the next position with two really fascinating guys that, that we want to pick your brain on because the first one is Paris Campbell and the second one is Jalen Hurd. Now, Paris Campbell is a fascinating because obviously blazing 40 time at the combine, 4-3-1. The narrative around him seems to be he didn't run vertical routes. He's not a, while he's got elite speed, he's not a guy who can win vertically down the field. He only com- caught two passes beyond 20 yards, I believe is the statistic that has been thrown out there. Is that more of, he just wasn't asked to do it in that offense? Or do you see concerns that he can't do that to his game and he is more of that short to intermediate, make plays after the catch type player and not be a guy who can win vertically down the field? And then two, Jalen Hurd, former running back, now a wide receiver. Some people think maybe he should be a move tight end at the next level. Thoughts on Jalen Hurd, maybe best position or role at the next level? 
and thoughts on Paris Campbell. I like Paris Campbell, and I really thought that, you know, when I was hearing that narrative, I thought as I watched him that maybe I would start to see things that would say, yeah, he's raw. And he may be – he's inexperienced in certain areas more than he's raw because we talked about the drive step, the long drive step. He can do that. He's shown that on tape. He can set a, set up these hard breaks with the long the one long drive step rather than gather his steps. Um, he didn't have to do it frequently, but when he did it, you're like – that's good. That's what you want to see. So you know that he's going to build on that route tree. Um, I also like the fact the way he catches the ball with his hands, he attacks the ball very well. You know, he can get airborne in high point. He can slide and dig out the low target. He was good. At, he's really good at adjusting the ball in the air on short outlet routes where he has to kind of turn downfield, but still be square to the ball. And he did that in such a fine way that, I think that there's a lot of skill in terms of how he tracks the football and accounts for multiple things. He integrates skills very well for what he was asked to do, and he's one of the best blockers in this class. Um, so to me, I think that that's one of the other things is that he's a big play, fleet-footed guy. He delivers a punch well as a, as a blocker. And what I think people don't think about either is that because he played in the slot a lot, or he was used a lot over the middle, they didn't use him on um, as much in the vertical game. But when they did, you know, studying Dwayne Haskins, one of the things I noticed often was Dwayne Haskins often missed Paris Campbell breaking wide open. Um, I saw that multiple times on some deep plays. One of them notably, and it happened multiple times on this route with him, was a, a deep corner route. And there was one, it was like one of the early plays in the game in the Rose Bowl against Washington where Campbell was wide open and the leverage for the, for the safety was right there to be like, if you just see this and you just look it off, you have a touchdown to Paris Campbell. If you just hit the broad side of his red barn of his jersey right there and it just didn't happen and he didn't even throw it. He didn't even see it. And that happened multiple times during the year. So I think that, um, maybe Haskins had some trouble with certain types of um, identifications of where he had advantageous plays. And part of that might have been from the slot in the deep game, being able to just kind of understand it and visualize that to a level because he rarely went there, even when the, the leverage was good for that. Hurd is one of the fun players because I don't know all the ins and outs of what went down at Tennessee. I mean, I read the Sports Illustrated article once, but I probably needed to read it a couple more times to understand what really went down there. But it seemed like he got thrown under the bus and that was kind of like a bickering divorced couple talking about why the marriage ended poorly. Um, you, you know, and a, and a lot of it ended up getting foisted on the herd for not wanting to be a team player, even though it was mentioned that he played herd and they, and they ran him into the ground. And it was funny because as a running back, he watched him, and I graded him three or four years. It was three years ago, I think, in the same class with, you know, guys like Derrick Henry. And I thought he's kind of slow-footed. He kind of trips over his feet. He's not really well balanced with his running. Um, he doesn't set up creases very well. He can catch okay. He's got some power, um, but I can see the quickness in his game. But it's just not all there. And what was funny is then I then we fast forward and and. I, and I saw him at Baylor as a wide receiver, and I'm like, this guy can drop his weight. He can do the drive step. He can catch the ball with his hands pretty well. He's quick. 
He attacks vertically right off the line really well. Oh, and wait, they put him in the backfield. He looks even better now as a running back than he did back then. And I understand that they're playing like nickel more often. He's not being loaded up against SEC defenses that are stacking the box. But his cuts and his ability to set up his footwork got a boost because he spent so much time working on the footwork of being a route runner and learning how to drop his weight and time his steps and set things up that I think it actually transferred well for him as a just a ball carrier in general. And he looked a lot cleaner and more precise as a ball carrier to the point that I was like, I kind of miss watching him as a running back. And I thought maybe I missed that. I, I, I thought maybe I had, um, liked him a lot as a running back. So then I went back to watch him as a running back back, you know, at Tennessee again, you know, this year. And I thought, Oh no, I didn't like him. And here's why he really did get better as a running back by being coming a receiver. And that was a really fascinating thing about him. And I think he should be a wide receiver. I think he should be an X probably maybe even he could probably play X or flanker eventually um, as he learns the route tree, but he can be a slot player right now. That's what he's been doing. And you can use him as kind of a big slot in the way that Richard Matthews in Tennessee was probably used. And you get more out of him because he's more dynamic as a, as a, as a, as a runner. And you can even use him in short yardage on some gap plays and probably get away with it or run toss with him. And, and you can get him to be like your second or third running back, your situational guy and have some scheme versatility and baked in with that as he's learning how to be an X or a, 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 a Z in the offense. So he's one of my top 15 guys. I, I'm really excited about him. And, and I think that the fact that he went, that he just was like, I'm a five-star running back, but I want to be a receiver, and I'm going to deal with all the fallout that I did and put my nose, you know, down, put my head down, and work on becoming a receiver. And you watch him at Baylor and go, he never looked like he was a running back in the first place until you put him in the backfield. So to me, that's an ultimate compliment for his work ethic, and I'm excited about where he's going to head. Well, I'm right there with you. I mean. This is something that I never got a chance to articulate to Paul today, and I, I was meaning to say it was I had a chance to go back and kind of watch some of Jalen Hurd, and I, I was really late to the party on him, to be honest with you. I mean, I saw him as a running back at Tennessee, and like you, I shared kind of kind of a lukewarm kind of feeling for him at the position. You know, I, there were glimpses. There were definitely glimpses, but I remember going back to my notes that most of those glimpses came in the versatility to his game. There were times <laughs> where he was used as a wide receiver, and I was like, wow, this guy can run around. He catches the ball really well. He's good in space, but there are times when it's in the backfield, when he's running certain plays in between the tackles that he just looks a little bit, it looks a little sluggish. It looks like we're, we're, we're not really connected correctly to, to the information that we need to make the moves that we need to make. We're, we're kind of figuring it out and, and that's fine, but to do it the way he was doing it, it didn't, it didn't seem natural. It didn't seem like we were playing with it. It seemed like we were just kind of confused, but fast forward now to what he's done at Baylor and I'm going to tell you honestly, and to everybody listening out there, I, I'm very much aligned with what Matt just said and things of that nature. He's a guy that's going to be making a charge up my board because I do think that the NFL more than more than anything else is primed for a player like him, primed for a player with his unique capabilities where he does have that experience behind the tackles. I'm thinking, like you said, Rashad Matthews, I'm almost wondering if in the same play style of a Percy Harvin, only much bigger of a guy. Yeah. where you can kind of use him in the backfield as a running back in certain formations, not have to go formational changes. You can go out there, you know, in a, in a two-by-one set. You can go out there in 11 personnel 
and you don't really need to go crazy um, you know, doing too much. You can actually go out there four wides and you can actually have him kind of motion into the backfield and he can be that guy for your team because he might be just skilled enough to pull it off. And that that he that for me is just makes him a very interesting if we're going to go with that whole problem solver thing makes him very interesting in terms of solving problems and i like that pervy harz um, percy harvin comparison because again i appreciate comparisons that aren't always just about body type and it's just about function and role and how they can do that and because i think that's a little bit more accurate to where we're heading and yeah i mean it's almost like jalen hurt is percy harvin or he's cordero patterson who can run yes. routes yes. you know and that's a that's an even better thing right there so yeah, so let me jump in there and let's transition this to some more pass catchers. But let's talk about this tight end class because this tight end class is a really fun class. And I know Matt and I, a couple of years ago, we were like the the class of Evan Ingram and OJ Howard and David Njoku. And, and, you know, and we were like, wow, this might be the best class. You know, we might do this for 20, 30 years and this could be the best class we ever see. Three first rounders. And then. All of a sudden, this class comes, and it's possible we get three first-rounders again, and then a whole bunch more could still potentially go you know, on night two as well. So it's a really deep class, really fascinating. Let's start out with, with Noah Fant, because he's obviously the guy, went to the Combine, obviously tested out as an elite athlete, you know, Better than even Evan Ingram a couple years ago. Probably, you know, the closest tight end profile to him, you know, in terms of athletic ability, maybe Vernon Davis. We know what he does well. He, he, he's he got great speed. He could attack the seam. He can get vertical. The questions that I think Matt and I have both kind of brought up with him this year is that his route refinement and his route tree in general, they're a little bit raw and unrefined that we've often said, well, he has the athletic ability of like an Evan Ingram. Maybe his route understanding, his route refinement is a little bit more like David Njoku when Njoku first came out. And he's kind of like a blend of those guys in terms of athleticism and route running. And David Njoku didn't explode onto the scene. Some people are still waiting for him to kind of explode on the scene. And I remember the fantasy community was really frustrated by Seth Devolve playing so much that first year. And what you kind of heard and, and sensed was that it was Najoku really's understanding of maybe the routes and the, and the scheme and stuff like that. You have some concerns about Noah Fant in terms of his immediate transitioning to the next level because of that route running and, and route understanding. Yeah. If the team's expecting a lot from him in the, in those types of ways, it could be, it could turn out to be a Najoku type of situation. If they're more like, listen, we're going to use him like Evan Ingram and use him kind of like a wide receiver and ask him to run more from the slot and run angular routes that are just kind of more in the intermediate game and let him win by getting behind people. Then I think you or crossing routes or anything that just showcases his speed and quickness. Then I think that this is one of those situations where he could still have a big year, but your analysis would be on the dot, right? But everyone would be saying, well, see, he's still, he still produced really well. Um, so I think that for Fan, he doesn't really – he can drop his weight effectively to make turns, but he doesn't bend his knees as much as he should to earn that sudden deceleration that you want to see from some of these hard-breaking routes. Um, and I think that that's one of the things that he's going to have to get better at. Um, I have some issues more with his hands. Um, I think he fights the ball a little bit. 
I think that there are times that he doesn't always use the correct hand position at the times that he should. Um, and so while contact doesn't distract him and he can and make all the different types of catches, he does have some inconsistencies when it comes to making the catch. And sometimes he can be a little late when he gets his hands together to catch the ball. And you see him catching the back end of the ball a lot. And so I'd like to see him kind of shore that up because he's going to have more difficult targets coming in his, in his near future. Um, so he's a guy that might have some of that Cortland Suttonitis thing going on with him um, where he struggles a little bit, but still impresses people in camp. Um, so he's not my, you know, athletically though, you're, you're right. I mean, OJ Howard was like, OJ Howard to me was probably, it, when you look across the board, was athletically freakish on the level like almost like Vernon Davis was and Fant was the closest one to really either meet or exceed a lot of those metrics that Howard showed um you know a, a few years ago and I agree with you I think this is a better class yeah I mean it, it's a fascinating class and I want to pivot that to a guy who may be underwhelmed I think is the right word in, in terms of his athletic testing but I know we talk about him a lot, and we've talk, been talking about him since last summer, and we didn't even think he was going to come out in this draft class, and that's Irv Smith Jr. And for whatever reason, maybe it's the, the, the combine didn't live up to the expectations maybe people put. Maybe it's the size, which I, I, I don't see that as a huge issue. But Irv Smith seems to be getting lost in the shuffle a little bit. And all of a sudden, the consensus, whether it's right or wrong, I personally think it's wrong, seems to think that he might not be a first-round pick anymore, that maybe he falls a little bit. We love his game. Where are you on Irv Smith Jr.? We love the route running. We see him make plays after the catch. You know, We like a lot of components of his game, even more than a Noah fan. Oh, I have him over Noah Fant easily in in my on my board, and I have. And if you were to say that he's the top tight end in this class, I would not argue with you one way or the other. This guy, it cracks me up. I hope he. I, it, I'm a Cleveland Browns fan, and I want David Njoku to do well. But if he fell and the Browns drafted him and kicked Njoku to the curb, I could <laughs> care less, and I want Njoku to do well. But that's how much I like Irv Smith. Because Irv Smith Jr., the, the things you have to understand, he's he, he's big enough. You know, he's a move tight end, but he's going to play the wing. But it's not so much that. His technique is so rock solid in terms of he's so good at punching. He's so good at getting set at, his, at the angles he needs to set at as a blocker. He's so quick after his punch to be able to set his position and cut off defenders so he can cut off block. He can make drive blocks. He can go to the second level and help out. He can work from the wing. He's someone that you know that can get hand position. He continues to work his hand position in there, and he delivers a good punch. And then on top of that, I think he's going to be. I honestly think if I were to make a prediction, and I think I said wrote about this, is that if I were going to make a prediction for a tight end this year. I would predict the the player most likely to have the greatest production of any rookie tight end Stop will it. be Irv Smith. Don't say that. Don't say that because I, that's what we said on a podcast. You copied us. Totally copied. There we go. I did. There we go. I've got to pay totally. the fine. No, but, the, I, yeah. the, it's so true though. That's we, we we we. I kid you not. That was something that we had said the other day, and it's just so ironic to hear it from you too as well. You feel that way as well, though. Oh, absolutely. Because even though he's not as strong or as fast 
or as quick as some of the other players. When you watch him in the open field, he's far more aware of what's happening, and he does use his skills to his best of his ability. He bounces off hits. He finds the open crease. He's able to set them up faster. He transitions faster than most of the receivers after the catch. He's just not used a ton because, again, it's Alabama, and they do certain things where they used him, and he and and he flashed all of that stuff, but it wasn't at the highest volume. But, man, is he good. He reminds me of Delaney Walker. Like, Delaney Walker, when Walker blossomed and was healthy enough to be a a Pro Bowl tight end. And I think whoever's getting Irv Smith is basically getting one of the best players in this draft and is going to end up, like, just thanking their lucky stars. That I'm sure there's a couple teams right now going, just like, please, just everyone still keep shutting up about him. Just, just, you know, just let him fall. Just let him fall because he, he is he is that good. And and he may not be a great blocker in the NFL, but he'll be good. He'll be good enough that he can play every down. And he's someone that will will be helpful. And his receiving skills have been untapped to the degree that they can be used um, compared to what happened in Alabama. Yeah, absolutely. I know for me personally, and you just mentioned it, for me, he's a top five player in terms of offensive skill players in this class. And, you know, Matt and I were fortunate enough probably about a month ago or maybe five weeks ago to be on the Dino Blueprint pod with Matt Williamson and Ryan McDowell. And we did one of those, you know, really early one round dynasty rookie mock drafts. And Matt had the last pick in the first round and, and took Irv Smith. And I bet a lot of people who listened to that podcast were what like, What a moron. What a Don't moron. What an Irv- idiot. And Hawkinson and Fant were on the board because the consensus, this was post combine. So Fant blows up the combine. Hawkinson checked off the athletic box and was still the guy. And, and, and Irv Smith's going the other way. And Matt's like, You know what? Pick 12 and end of round one, Irv Smith Jr. And I'm sitting there thinking, I love it because. It, it, it's different and unique and it, we're not being prisoners to what we just saw at the combine, which I, the, nothing about the combine made me think any different about Irv Smith jr. But I think maybe he was going to be a little bit more athletic. Sure. But he's got the play speed on the field to do everything. And it's listen, Bill Belichick's going to look like a genius. If he really wants to take a tight end in round one, if he's the guy that makes sure Irv Smith jr. Doesn't get to the second round and he probably likes trading down. But maybe he just stays there and says, you know what, Gronk's gone. We need a weapon who can do a lot of different things for Tom Brady. We'll give him Irv Smith Jr. And then all of a sudden, Matt picking him at 12 is going to look like in genius. And now all of a sudden, he's going to be going ahead of 12 in rookie drafts because he would be attached to that offense and that scheme. Really yeah. talented player. And, and, Gene, and what's funny is that another guy who really liked him in addition to us is Gene Clemens, who has done occasional work at Football Game Plan, and I've had him on a show. And Gene is a former wide receiver um, at, at, a smaller, at a smaller college, and he's an offensive coordinator at a, at a high school um, that I grew up near. And we were talking about him, you know, he wanted to come on. He was like, man, you need to come on a show, and we need to do like a debate of like Fant versus – Irv Smith, and I kept thinking, and the only reason I didn't do it and I didn't tell him this is I would love to have Gene back on my show is just that I was like, I there's I, I don't want to represent the fan side because I like Irv Smith. So I, I you know, I'm totally with you, and it would be a boring show because I, I wouldn't be believable in trying to sell Fant 
in comparison to that, as good as Fant can be. It's just that Smir- Smith is a more versatile player and more polished player right now. Not, not to go crazy with this, and I, and I know that we're going to kind of move into something else, but I think just the Irv Smith discussion, just to kind of color it a little bit more, it, it, again, if we're, if we're talking the, the traits of the player, the way in he's solving problems, what he's doing on the field, he really is a handful immediately right now for any positional player from a linebacker to a safety at the NFL level. He really is. And I and I would contest that it's not just because of what he's doing athletically. If you want to whittle it down to that, I think we're missing the beauty of what he does on the field. It's because of the little nuances that he does as a route runner. It's because of the way in which he sets up his breaks. It's because of the way in which he plays the game within the game. And, and as Matt, as you talk about the vocabulary, he has a very vast and wide vocabulary. I honestly believe he's not the athlete Evan Ingram was, but I can tell you right now that as a route runner, he's just as dynamic, just as incredible of a route runner as Ingram was. And Ingram was a good route runner at Ole Miss. And it just, he just didn't get used that much, very much to the same degree how Irv Smith wasn't. So I kind of, I kind of have them in a very similar style and archetype um, as you would put it, Matt, in my mind, because I do think they're immediately NFL ready in terms of production as a receiver. Yeah, I love it. So two, two other tight ends I want to bring up are two guys getting some attention, but I think they're such fascinating guys to bring up, and that's Jay Sternberger and Dawson Knox. And, you know, for people who evaluate prospects, you know, a lot on the film component of it, as we three do, how hard of it was to do an evaluation when Sternberger has all this production, all this opportunity, you know, to show his skill set and then try to compare him to a guy like Dawson Knox, who, you know, he's he's got to be begging for some touches over there in that Ole Miss offense, but really good athleticism, showed glimpses, you know, and I think the NFL is is very intrigued by the skill set. I know we're very intrigued by the skill set, Dawson Knox, but those two guys I think are so fascinating. One with so much production this year, one with so minimal production, trying to put them together and say, okay, this is what I like about this guy. This is what I like about this guy. It's very hard. So maybe take for the process just, you know, in instances like this, how hard is it to do, to make an evaluation, you know, and when a guy has such little opportunity on his film, like a Dawson Knox, and then obviously also quick thoughts on Jay Sternberger as well. Sure. Um, you know, it's funny because I have them both um, in my top five, but there's a, a bit of a, a dip between Sternberger and Knox. And I noticed as I'm looking through the RSP that I have a, that I have a scoring error listed for Dawson Knox (laughs) 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 that I docked him five points on the talent store that score didn't mean to, he should have, he should be five points higher than where I have him. Um, Not in my ranking, but in the score. Um, So that's a, that's a little bit of a typo that I should, I wish I had, um, had seen, but um Nonetheless, Dawson Knox. I mean, the thing about him is he's he's as an evaluation. It's interesting because this is where you get into how many catches do you need to see versus how many drops do you need to see. You know, for instance, um, as in like accuracy for quarterbacks. How many how many passes do you really need to see? And then we start getting into the slippery idea of well, how much volume is really there because statistically none of it's really that significant. Um, So. Uh, you know, there's some point that you still you have to feel comfortable with it. But when for me, it's always been, and that may have to change, but I've looked at Dawson Knox and go, I've seen him catch the ball enough that I know I'm comfortable with what he does as a receiver. 
I'm comfortable with the situations of where he caught the ball, um, especially over the middle and tight coverage after contact, um, you know, taking contact. He did a really good job with that. And we always knew he was going to be a good athlete. He didn't disappoint with that in any way, shape or form. And so for me, it's like, yeah, he just, he didn't get used a lot. Kind of like OJ Howard didn't get used a lot in certain ways. But one thing I know is that that dude can block and he can do it as a fullback, a wingback. He can do it in line. He's, he may not be quite as good as TJ Hawkinson as a blocker, but he's just as versatile and he's not that far away. Um, so, you know, he's, he may not, we may not have those glory tapes of him, you know, pancaking defensive, you know, big 10 defensive ends, you know, but at the same time, you see him being able to hold his own against some pretty good SEC, um, defensive ends and outside linebackers. And that's pretty impressive in its own right. So I really like Dawson Knox and I think some teams going to be really looking really smart when they pick him up, um, you know, as a discount bargain bin kind of value play in the middle rounds compared to, or even day two, you know, depending on how much they like him um, compared to, you know, the Hawkinson's, the fans, and maybe even the Irv Smith. I think that he might not be as good as what some of their upside shows, but upside may never get there. I think his floor is just as strong as those guys. Um, So I like him a lot. And then Sternberger, Sternberger, man, you know, I think he can become an, a more effective blocker. I think he's already shown some pretty good things in terms of cutting them off, uh, cutting off defenders. Um, you know, I think he can be a little late off the snap. I think he can be underhooked and turned to the ground in short yardage situations when he's facing a good run defender. Um, and so he has little nuances he has to work on as a blocker. But you can tell that he's sudden enough as a mover that he can finish his first attack, reestablish his hands, get that second wave of good footwork going on there. So it makes him a good stock blocker. Um, he reaches the second level fast. He delivers a punch. You know, he's good with um, anchoring. You know, and I think when he can add weight, he's going to even be harder to push around. And then we know he can make catches against contact, and he's a load to bring down. I mean, he's a he's a little straight line-ish, you know, at certain times as a runner. But he's like, come take a ride, you know, I, the ride on the Sternberger bus, you know, and he's going to he's gonna be tough to bring down if you wrap him high. Um, so I really like what he showed as a receiver. I know he's working with Drew Lieberman, the sideline hustle coach, who got um, – who used to be with Rutgers as a, as a assistant wide receiver coach. And he was working with guys like Jawan Winfrey of Colorado, but he also got hired by Sternberger's agent to work with him. And there's some wonderful tape out there on YouTube of him putting those guys through drills and kind of showing how critiquing them at the same time and kind of, you know, after the practice and going back over the tape and saying, and like sending the message like Jake, when you watch this, know that what you're doing here is really good. You got a lot to work on in this particular area, but you're already grasping the basic concepts of what I need you to do to get these routes in order, you know, in terms of how you, how you set yourself up and foot fire and run from a balanced position so that you don't get jammed and knocked off balance. So both of those guys, I mean, again, if you're not looking for an instant starter, but um, well, Dawson Knox, I think can be an instant starter. Um, And um, I just think Jay Sternberger has a little bit more upside and, and, and why he may not be an instant starter is because of his blocking and certain aspects of his route running. And I, I'm kind of, I'm not majorly so, but I'm kind of laughing in a little peeve that I'm looking at that I have Dawson Knox with a 73 depth of talent score grade when I meant to put 78 on there. 
But oh anyway, my God, we we, we we found an error on the 1,000, I think, 24 pages it is. It could happen. Yeah, we're going to find probably another 300, too. It has nothing to do with the editors, either. It has to do with me. Well, I mean, listen, like we were saying earlier, this this class is, is just so deep at the position. We would be remiss if we moved on to another position without at least kind of asking you for your favorites at the position. Are there Are there players that we haven't mentioned, some sleepers, some guys that you just kind of – you know, kind of have pegged for glory that just may not realize it year one, but maybe might be that year two, year three kind of blossoming tight end that we're looking for. Because in reality, it is a hard position to immediately come out and contribute at. So, I mean, it's not unheard of, nor is I think unwarranted to to kind of consider these players, all of them being maybe two years out. So, I mean, do you have those guys that you're just like earmarking for future success? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I know a lot of people feel like Foster Moreau is underrated and kind of in the same camp as Dawson Knox. And I agree with that. Kahale Waring is certainly an exciting player because of the fact that he can make those catches and turn his body and you can see potential for him to be a physical blocker, but he's got work to do. But my favorite guy, and then, and then I think I know is how to pronounce his name, right? Please let me know. Is, is it Elise or Alize mm-hmm. Mac, you know, mm-hmm. as a receiver, he's fantastic. If he can get better in terms of how he moves and his balance, he could be intriguing. Um, but my favorite guy in this class at the tight end position um, in terms of just below the the top-tier radar is Trevon Wesco, the West Virginia tight end, wingback, fullback, whatever you want to call him. Um, I, I've been kind of building that bad wagon for a while. Um, he is a former quarterback who came in weighing about 200 pounds, um, and wanted to play quarterback. I ended up having to go to junior college and added a ton of weight. I mean, he's like in the near 270s. And he turned into such a good blocker that Dana Holgerson basically during one time during the season was like, listen, we're going to um, – I could devote a whole press conference to talking about how good of a blocker Trevon Wesco has become. He's literally a, an official part of our offensive line. We're not calling him a tight end who plays in line. He's literally another part of our offensive line, and you can see that. And he's aggressive. He can punch. He can turn. He can get to the second level, and he's quick. And that's what jumped out to me at the Senior Bowl. I was like, you know, everyone was talking about uh, about Moreau, and it made sense. He earned that. But I'm watching Trevon Wesco run whip routes, just like <laughs> I was w- raving about Hakeem Hakeem Butler and I'm watching him run whip routes and just like beat safeties and they were like running off in the other direction because he could decelerate so quickly. I'm sitting there going, this is a big dude doing this. And while he doesn't have great long speed, he's going to get, he's going to be that guy who can stretch that intermediate seam just enough, you know, and be able to make the catch. And he's rugged and he's so fluid after the catch. I mean, he can, not hurdle people, but kind of jump over reaches and wraps, and he's going to take you for a ride or drop the pads and 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 run over you. I just love the physicality and versatility of his game, and he is a better receiver than people realize. And it's funny because I look at like West Virginia's offense, and I think that the quarterback made most of the receivers in that offense. Um, whereas we, I think we've often thought the opposite early on in in, in this draft cycle. But Wesco is the exception. I think that dude is for real, and I I cannot wait to see him 
on a team and in a camp. And when when Brian Baldinger is like talking about him, I mean, like I was laughing because I watched something after I had I put out something about a couple months later. A couple months later, after I put something out, Brian Baldinger is doing his Baldy breakdowns, which are so great. And and he was talking about Wesco, and he was like, "Listen, I got to get this guy on my team any way, shape, or form as possible." And I was like. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm right there with you. I mean, Wesco Wesco really seems like a guy, and listen, I have disagreed with a lot of uh, Giants general manager Dave Gettleman's moves, but he really does seem like a guy that when Gettleman just sits down and watches film, that old school nasty approach. Giants have eight picks on day three. They are all about two tight end sets right now, especially. I think they're going to run a lot more of them this year with Odell, you know, not on the team. I think they're going to ask Evan Ingram to be much more in the receiving component. You know, Red Ellison's a guy who's making a lot of money who maybe could be a cut, uh, you know, cap casualty, you know, either this year before the season starts or definitely maybe after one more year. With eight picks on day three, Wesco would be a guy that makes a lot of sense for the Giants that they want to be a power running football team. You know, they, they have one in a few teams left that use a fullback. They could even ask Wesco to do some of that stuff. You know, he really makes a lot of sense. I think they have two picks in the fourth, three in the fifth, a pick in the sixth, two in the seventh. Somewhere, somewhere in there, he would make a lot of sense for them. And it, w- it would be connecting the dots a little bit, but it's going to be interesting to see if he goes off the board and if the team, a team like the Giants, uh, maybe looks at that versatile skill set that you were just kind of picture, you know, laying out for this right there and, and giving us a clear picture of and think that he might fit in there. So that's going to be a fun one to watch. And, I, you know, I'd be excited to have a player like him, you know, on the Giants, you know, and playing a variety of different roles and positions. So- 100%. And, that, and just to add one quick little note about that is then you can move Evan Ingram to the slot and use him a little bit more as that move tight end when he naturally is. And I, I love the fit. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. So let's pivot this to the running back position. And we've got about an hour. We know they always, these podcasts always go along with you, <laughs> but we'll try to hit on some running back questions and then wrap it up with a couple of rapid fire quarterback questions. I've heard you on, on other podcasts mention, I believe the, the terminology is the running back position was as challenging an eval position. And it was almost like a landmine. I think you said to try to, to evaluate. Can you expand upon that a little bit on why it was such a difficult challenge? And then I'll just take it to the consensus running back, which is Josh Jacobs. And more so, how does he kind of, and not like in a ranking standpoint, how does he kind of compare to the running backs from the previous classes? And maybe we'll keep Saquon Barkley out of the conversation, but like, does he kind of, do you see his skill set? on a level of whether it's, you know, pick a running back, you know, Joe Mixon, Christian McCaffrey, Dalvin Cook, Leonard Fournette, you know, you know, any, any of the other guys who've been the consensus top running backs over the last couple of years, does he warrant being in that conversation? Those, Those are all great questions. And I think the first thing is why this was a minefield for me was that the backs were often tightly graded together. Um, there was very little separation between a lot of them, but they're so diverse in how they play and how they're built and how they express their game um, and what types of roles that they might be used in that you could take the 10th ranked player or the ninth ranked player and put him at the top of the board at the end of the year if he gets into the right situation. So, I mean, we hear that all the time, but this was even more... um, 
it was this was it was even more the case with this particular class. And then there are players that are kind of difficult evaluations, just all in all, because L.J. Scott's a great example. You look at him; he can catch the ball really well. He shows some great change of direction skill in terms of precision with his feet. He can run with power. I think he has good vision. And and you think, but is he quick enough? Did I get enough chance to see if he's quick enough? Because if he is, he might be one of the top backs in his class. But I need more proof than what I saw. And and then there's guys like, oh, I don't know, um, Henderson. You know, Daryl Henderson, to me, you know, when I grade just running backs according to, like, the versatility of what a feature back all has to do, he's not in my top ten. But if I grade by... Guys who can operate in space are going to predominantly work in space. We're going to catch the ball in the backfield and and they're going to run certain types of plays, maybe to the edge, certain types of plays up the middle. He's the top back in this class uh, for me in that realm. So like you can understand that if you put Daryl Henderson on a team that plays him to his strengths, he's the best rookie running back on the board. If you If you don't necessarily do that and play it up as much, then he he drops down. Then you have guys who are just puzzling, like Devin Singletary, who I've talked about a lot in different podcasts. But you know, I've described him as short, small, slow, lacking great acceleration, and and being slow with change of direction skill. But he has excellent peripheral vision. He understands timing really well. How to set up the set up defenders. He presses creases so deeply that he may actually gain an extra step when he's actually cutting back because defenders lose him when he gets that tight to the line of scrimmage. And and but you think, is he gonna is he gonna be able to translate to the NFL that way? Because defenders are a little sharper on the uptake. They're more athletic. You know, even when he's playing Oklahoma's, you know, Oklahoma compared to the worst NFL team is still the worst NFL team is still going to be a step or a, a half step to a step or two steps quicker than what you see at Oklahoma right now, because there's still the athleticism may be similar, but the potential of or the, the potential and the reality of what is actually translated to the field is different. So that was what was difficult about it. when I look at Josh Jacobs, if you're looking at, can he be like, you know, you look at Joe Mixon, you say, well, Joe Mixon could easily be a top three back based on physical skills and some of the things that he flashes. Um, Joshua Jacobs, you might look at him and say, well, he's not quite that fast. So maybe you can't imagine that kind of breakaway upside on a consistent basis is going to put him over the top and have those big yardage days like a Saquon Barkley or a Joe Mixon or a Todd Gurley or an Ezekiel Elliott. But Joshua Jacobs to me is a guy who year in, year out, as long as he stays healthy in fantasy terms, will probably be in the top eight to 12 every year. And a down year will be like 15th. And when you look at it from that perspective, he belongs every bit as as much as any of these other backs that you just mentioned to say he's in their tier. He just happens to be in the lower end because maybe his upside's capped a little bit, um, but he's versatile. Obviously, he's smart in terms of how he runs the football. He finds those solutions. And I think he has very good judgment with how to um, integrate down and distance with, this, with what's unfolding at the line of scrimmage and not make bad decisions. I think he tends to, he'll take the, he'll take the, 
the minimal play or minimal gain opportunity over trying to do too much and lose yardage. And so I, I like him a lot, and I think he's very much deserving in as being fitting in with some of the top names in previous classes other than Saquon Barkley and, and you-know-who. Nick Chubb. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, no I, 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 first of all, I agree with you 100%, and I think the things that you chimed in about, especially when it came to evaluating the class, I, 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 love, I love the idea of talking about Darrell Henderson and talking about how really when you start kind of thinking about where he would fit in an offense and what actual problems the guy can solve very well, you begin to see this kind of almost um, – this not siloed. I don't want to say that, but you see a specialized version where some of these guys could be elite contributors in, in specific situations. And to that point, I think that's really what happens with a class like this, where you have players that can do some things excellent and other things. Eh. I mean, then you're, you're in that position where you're like, well, where do they fit in the grand scheme of things? And the reality is it's all going to depend on who takes them. So I mean, it, it really kind of drills home that point. And I think that's a, an excellent way to kind of frame it. And that's why it kind of takes me to some of the other players that you mentioned that that kind of came up to me. I love the discussion about, you know, LJ Scott, and I would love to go um, into that a little bit more. But there's guys that jump out to me a little bit more that I know um, a lot of people have some varying perspectives about. So for what can you tell me or how do you feel about players like, you know, Alexander Madison, uh, and Bruce Anderson, players like that, and of course the ever embroiled, enigmatic Elijah Holyfield, because there are sweeping, you know, polar feelings about Elijah Holyfield throughout the evaluation community, and it would just be interesting because that group, in and of itself, has a lot of varying opinions throughout the space. So, is there any way you can kind of bring some framework and understanding to those guys? Yeah, and it's funny because they're all actually very close together on my board. Um, so uh, you basically mentioned um, three players who are four together on my board right now. Um, so let's start with Alexander Madison. I think that with Madison, I see a very polished, refined runner who understands how, you know, you can watch one play of his. Uh, and I, we've heard this before, and you often hear coaches who – they said, I watched three plays of that guy and I turned off the tape and I offered him a scholarship. And you <laughs> can say, how can that be? You know, how can you do that? And, and there's a part of you, there's a, there's some validity to say, you don't want to do that. You know, you want to be methodical about what you do, but there are plays on Madison's tape where you can watch one play and see 12 different things that say that's an NFL running back. That's an, you know, on one play, see 12 different things. I highlighted in the boiler room, actually. I think it was that many. It was either 10 to 12 things. And it's because he understands, like you say, finding solutions. He understands how to process blocking schemes quickly and make efficient decisions with his footwork so that he's not eating too much space up to change direction and get back downhill. He runs with great pad level. He looks like when he runs, he looks like he's leaning at like the right angle to, to be able to just drop the pads even a little more if he needs to get under, or he can just stay where he is at his lean and just knock somebody over and come over top of them. Um, so he catches the ball well. He's good at those like Texas routes, those like angle routes. He's very good at that. Smart kid, plays with balance. And he and the balance also extends to his footing in bad conditions. So, you know, I he look 
he doesn't look much different even when he's playing in snow and ice than he does playing on a good field. And I was concerned about maybe how fast or quick he was because he reminded me of what I thought I saw in Jamal Williams at the Green Bay Packers running back who I, where I failed with Jamal Williams in assessing him is that I looked at his combine metrics and he wasn't quite as quick as I thought he'd be. He wasn't, didn't quite have the acceleration I thought he did. It was more between the, what I'd say the committee tier and the starter tier on my evaluation. And I gave him kind of a bump projecting that he would get quicker thinking that here's a worker. It's going to happen. What I failed to, realize is that he already worked hard enough he's already in great shape he's pretty much maximized his physical ability and that was the risk i took that that blew up because you see him and you go yeah he can carry the load for a team if you put him in seattle or you put him in baltimore he'd probably be a really good back for them because they want to pound the ball and he's gonna be a volume type of player and and he's and he's a versatile guy but in Green Bay, where you only get so many opportunities before Aaron Rodgers decides, no, that's not how we're going to do this. I'm going to throw the ball, you know, a whole lot, and I'm going to check out a running plays. And if you're not, you know, breaking long distance runs, then well, you know, whatever. I can't help you. I'm trying to figure out this Mike McCarthy offense to figure out to do something good with it. Um, so, you know, but or whatever the he said she said thing has been with you know the Tyler Dunn article with all of what gone on, and that was an excellent article, but. You know, the thing with uh, Madison that I really like about him is that he's a smart guy. He plays smart. He plays refined. So that's good. Then you look at a guy like, you know, after that, Bruce Anderson. I've always liked Bruce Anderson. Very good ball security, some, uh, you know, which is very consistent. I think he's not unbelievably powerful. He's not unbelievably fast. He's quick enough. He does everything well enough. I think to be a high-end contributor, if not a starter in the league, what he does great is catch the football and run routes. Man, if he didn't get dinged up at the Senior Bowl, I think we would have been talking about him all week for how uncoverable he was in these one-on-one drills um, just against linebackers and safeties. And I think I mentioned this one other place, but it it just is important to underscore. When you're dominating that that well – that the only way a defender on you know in practice is like, I'm not going to let this happen to me, and the only resort they could do was he was going to charge up field and and just basically hit um, hit the man at the line of scrimmage before he can get off there and knock him down. That was the only successful defensive play I saw covering um, this guy, you, you know, Bruce Anderson at the Senior Bowl in the first practice, and then early in the second practice before he got hurt. Very natural pass catcher, very good at adjusting the ball in the ways that even Paris Campbell I highlighted. He does some of that. You know, he's a special teams guy. Um, I think he's someone that could probably be versatile enough to play in a single back system and and still be able to play outside zone, inside zone. I think that he can do some gap plays for you. He's just athletic enough. Um, and I think he can carry the load. I think I don't know if he's going to be asked to, but I think that he'll get a chance to prove that he's that he's a really good player. So I think that he is worth considering as a starter in that way. And then Elijah Holyfield. Um, listen, I've described him as Travis Henry in the sense that Travis Henry was always good enough to start for a team, but no team wanted to pay him big time money. Maybe he's the modern day CJ Anderson in that respect. 
that you know that he's good enough to play, good enough to produce. And every team's like, we don't really want to pay this guy money because he's not fast enough. He doesn't bring that flash to the game to be that every down threat that's gonna that's gonna put the fear in the defenses in a way that they have to change their coverage in order to um, in order to play us. But man, when you put him on the ga- in the game, he's gonna get the hard yards for you. He's versatile enough to catch the ball. He's got. He's quick enough. He's absolutely quick enough. You watch him take the short corners against SEC defense or defenders, and when you can take the short corner on a play, that shows you have the acceleration, not the long corner. Long corner is more of like acceleration plus some of that long speed that kicks in um, if you can hold that acceleration. But the short corner is the one where it's like you have that 20-yard acceleration skill, and he does have that, and he is rugged. The only thing that's – the kind of funny thing to me about Elijah Holyfield, because I was a big fan of Evander Holyfield, was that as a blocker, he has to work on his uppercut. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think he has the will, but I think he dad. needs to get into the gym and work on the uppercut with his dad. Yeah, dad, I need a little help. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, fascinating discussion there with, with those prospects. I mean, there's so many other running backs that we can bring up and talk about, but I do want to pivot the quarterbacks to close the night. And a couple of questions at the quarterback position that I think are really fascinating to kind of expand upon. And, and I'll start with two of the two of the high reputation guys in terms of probably going to be first round picks. A lot of people are very questionable in terms of whether or not they deserve to be first-round picks. As Giants fans, I know Matt and I are a little bit shaking on whether or not this is where the Giants may be looking. So we ask you, Drew Locke, David, uh, Daniel Jones, these guys obviously have some flaws to their game. I'm asking you, in terms of their flaws that you can mention do you see any of them, or do you, or which ones in particular? Are, do you see ones that maybe can be fixable or developed with a year sitting behind, you know, a, a veteran quarterback, a good, strong coaching staff that maybe with that developmental time, maybe it won't be a wasted pick that they can fix some of their issues that maybe right now you don't look at them as round one or even round two type players. Uh, and I don't know really where you stand on, on, on either of these guys. Are, are there some things about their game that are fixable that maybe they could develop and progress and maybe at least be warranted as a, as a good starting quarterback? Okay. So let me start this off with a little bit of a question to make sure of something. Um, Paul, what specific math subjects do you teach? You know, I, in I teach algebra two trigonometry and pre-calc. Okay, so when you're talking about pre-calc and trig, you have to have a basis of algebra, you, you know, obviously. 100%. 100%, okay. So you, I'm sure you have kids in your class who you know have the mind to solve problems well, um, but they forget the fundamentals of the algebra because they just get lazy about certain types of things, about different little rules that are that are small rules that they just forget and it blows up the entire answer and it was traced to because two negatives equal a positive when you're multiplying or whatever it is you know and i think that when you look at drew lock that's his that's him drew lock is the guy that when you watch him play you you can i call him a light switch player instead of a thermostat player and that's because 
when he drops back, he doesn't show tempo on a consistent basis. He doesn't have his feet set in a way that he needs to on a consistent basis. When he has to move away from the pocket and reset, he just opts to just lean on his arm talent, and he could have thrown a more accurate pass if he just took the extra step. And he didn't get lazy with the extra step and rush that process and end up being careless. He's the careless mistake guy with his with his processes as a player. And, you know, people will say, well, that's lazy and he's not a worker. I would say that's not necessarily the case. I don't know the story behind Drew Locke and all of that, but I would imagine that he doesn't have that much of a reputation. I've heard he's had a pretty good one at best. Is like that the coaches seem to praise him a lot. I think then coaches unintentionally enabled him because you're a big arm guy. You've done well. They don't have any competition for him. He's playing well, performing well, helping the team win. Yeah, we know he's got to work on some things. He'll get there at the next level. He'll work on it at the next level. And and maybe he's kind of bought into that a little bit and been enabled because no one's really said, dude, you really got to work on your footwork and your tempo and do all this stuff because you're not going to get away with this in the NFL. Or they may have even said that, and he just said, yeah, well, you know, I'll get there, you know, and shrug it off, laugh, and go, yeah, you're right, and then not do much about it. Because when you watch him – against Alabamas and Floridas, and he's like, oh, i got to be on top of my game. Suddenly you see the tempo show up. Suddenly you see the footwork show up a little bit better in the early parts of the game until the offensive line falls apart. And now he's like, it's you know, now everything deteriorates because he's dealing with pressure all the time. But when he wasn't, you're looking at me going, wow, he's making those types of throws that project well the NFL. But then you see him play, you know, another team that he may not be as on, you know, on alert for. And you're like, you're just the kid who's coasting through class right now, my man. And you and you got to do better than that. And I'm af- I'm afraid that because quarterback is so technique laden and so important from a performance perspective that you have to keep those tools sharp and continue to continuously sharpen them to get better and better so that it becomes just second nature to execute this way. That if you just think you can turn on the switch and start using your best technique. You're going to start overthinking things and slowing down your process, and you're not going to play all that well. So I think he has the most potential to improve of the two. And I think if the Giants get him, you get a little bit of hope there. If someone can you know, somehow get through to him that it's like, you're a good guy, you're not a bad kid for this, you, we're not telling you you're lazy, we're just telling you you're really going to have to focus on this. Do you get me? Do you understand why? Do, who do we have to have you meet with? So that they can tell you that you, someone you admire, who's like, I've been there like you. If you did, if I did this at your age, I would be much better. Matthew Stafford, Jay Cutler um, would be good examples <laughs> of that. Maybe they could probably help him not uh, in that way. Daniel Jones, I don't think Daniel Jones is going to ever get that much better than what he is. He's a tough guy. I man, is he good at taking punishment? He will keep coming back and trying to make those throws. He has a good enough arm. He has decent athletic ability. His footwork and tempo is always seeming to be lagging behind what he's doing and what he's reading. Um, it's like he's just not in sync that way. The way same way Jameis Winston was never has never really been in sync that way with his footwork to what he what he sees on the field. It's almost like his his head's ahead of his body. And I think that sometimes that's the case with Drew with um with Daniel Jones. 
You see a lot of miscommunications with his wide receivers that I think some of them are on his wide receivers, but a lot of them are on him. I see him coming off reads too quickly, going to the next read too slowly, um, being in situations where he can't reset his feet well and throw an accurate ball, or that when he does have balance and he's throwing from a good stance, the ball's just slightly off target in ways that are achingly close but consistent in the vertical and deep areas of his game. So when I watch him, I just don't think conceptually he has it all together, and and I feel like he's that old-school approach to um, scouting quarterbacks, which is he's big, came from a good academic program, he's smart, he got coached up by a player who happened to have two outstanding pupils and while he's a good coach and he's a very and he's a very good football coach in addition to a quarterback coach you know we don't talk about all the players that didn't become NFL starters who worked with David Cutcliffe you know and that's not to knock David Cutcliffe it's just kind of put him in perspective a little bit and so i think Daniel Jones is getting a little bit of a bump for things that don't matter as much as the fact that he doesn't process the game quick enough and he's not consistent with how he does it so if I were a Giants fan. I would be disappointed if Daniel Jones got drafted in the first round by the, by my team. If Drew Locke got drafted in the first round by my team, I'd be like, "Don't love it, but I'll I'll live with it and have some hope." Yeah, listen, I think I'm right there with you as someone who's following the team. I can get behind what they could see with Locke, and I think you laid it out perfectly that there's things there that if you can get him to work on consistently all those little nuanced details that you were talking about and maybe sitting and watching Eli Manning for half a year, whole year, maybe he could fix those things. The Daniel Jones thing, I I was going to follow it up with, what do you think the NFL sees? But you answered it all. The, the, that old approach, you know, everything, everything that you kind of laid out there is what it see, still seems to be is the, the mindset of why there seems to be this swarm around him now as, you know, going a slam dunk top 15 or top 17 pick. And then on the flip side, let's take this to Dwayne Haskins for a second, who it seems to be the flavor of the week where let's criticize and put him down. And now he's the guy rapidly falling in first rounds, whether it's true or whether it's not, you know, respect the people like Len Zerline saying he's here and it was more media pushing him up the board to be the number two quarterback in this class. Not so much the NFL teams, the two things that people continue to it seems to harp on Dwayne Haskins and I'll take the experience and the amount of games out of it for a second. It's the mobility or lack thereof. And then it's this idea that while he has the arm talent, NFL teams, it's so from what it sounds like are worried that he can't push the ball vertically down the field. Is that component another one of those instances where he just wasn't asked to do it, so we're criticizing and saying it's a, a concern or a flaw? Or in, when you watched him, do you see some legitimate concerns that make you think he can't be a good vertical passer? And do you think the mobility is going to hinder him at the next level? Well, you know, I watched 10 games and charted him. And, you know, when you talk about, say, certain types of throws in the vertical range, I mean – I, I use next gen stats to figure out what the threshold of accuracy was for each of the areas that I charted. And so for something like say the vertical sideline throw, which is 29 to 42 yards up the sideline, the expected range of accuracy is about 
And he was at 45.5% pinpoint accuracy on 11 throws out of the 10 games that I charted um, in that range, which is pretty darn good. Um, You know, you'd like to see him be pinpoint, but in the vertical and deep game, if you can have a combination of pinpoint and general accuracy that gets you over well over that 50% mark, you're probably doing well. And he was at 72% um, accuracy when you combine the general and pinpoint accuracy on that particular range. Um, and you could also see that he was probably 66% um, in the flat in the vertical range um, if you combine his pinpoint and general accuracy. And the, the threshold was 58% there, and he was at 66 And then the deep sideline, you know, the deep flat, he was about 40% in the deep flat, and the expected rate was about 55%. But if you combined his general accuracy, he was at 60%. So he was over that. You know, so I see a lot of things that tell me the potential's there. He's going to be, I don't think he's a bad vertical thrower. I think he just has a little bit more work to do. And a lot of vertical plays are about rapport with the receiver. There's a lot about timing with that and confidence hitting that. And you've only played one year as a starter. Listen, you get more confident as you start to play and you start taking more chances as you get in, into the um, into the season. And, and one of the things that I noticed with him is, you know, something as little as pump fakes. At, at the beginning of the year, it's like shoulder fakes. That's all he'd throw. Middle of the year, start to see some ball fakes and some movement with his arm. By the, by the um, Rose Bowl, it was full arm motion pump fakes with violence. And so what that tells you is kind of it's indicative of his entire season, which is I'm a performer. I'm getting a feel for what kind of chances I can take, how much I can open up my game, how confident I am in making certain decisions that I do in practice and translating that. And I think that Haskins is getting dinged for being a first-year player. And there's some caution about him being a first-year player. And that's why he's kind of dropping down the board a little bit. Whereas with Daniel Jones, you see all the risk management things that people like that are opposite from Haskins, which is multi-year starter, you know, more mobile, (laughs) you know, better quarterback, better known quarterback coach, you know, good mechanics, ability to play a little bit off platform, you know, even if he didn't do it all that well in any of those areas that, that Haskins did, he had more time and they go, well, we can invest a little more money in that because we can cover our assets a little better citing all these things with Haskins. We're going to look stupid if we draft him in in the early first round and he doesn't play well because we only relied on one year. Yeah. I mean, listen, I, it's one of those things that it's obviously lion season. The truth will come out, you know, a couple of weeks from now on draft night. And I'm going to be fascinated to see if, Haskins does get pushed down behind both Drew Locke and Daniel Jones. Like I can't wrap my head around it as you know, just from my evaluations on these guys watching these guys, but the NFL does things that are that, that shake my head and many other people's heads when, when it happens. And, and this would be one that I'd be shaking my head. Like as a giants fan, I, I hope it's all a big smoke screen that they didn't want to have to trade up to two or three for him. And they're hoping to get him at six and they take him and, and be done with it. And that's, that's what I would hope for as a giants fan. If that was their plan, I'd much prefer that plan than the plan being Daniel Jones. So, so it's going to be interesting to see maybe all these teams talking negatively about him or teams that want him, but maybe not. And it's going to be a fascinating to see how it all plays out in a couple of weeks. Final question of the night. 
I know you're a big fan. I've heard you on other shows. He's your top quarterback on the board. Will Greer out of West Virginia. I remember back last summer when Matt and I first started watching these guys and we did our positional shows in the summer. I remember telling Matt, like, I really like Will Greer. Like, this is a guy who, you know, Baker Mayfield kind of broke down some barriers last year in terms of, you know, not being the prototype that we were so accustomed to being guys that would go early in the draft. And that Kyler Murray might completely blow it out of the water this year. But I remember watching Will Greer and I'm thinking to myself, if the NFL like Baker Mayfield, I think they're going to like Will Greer. Like, you know, I'm not saying maybe he's going to go as high as Baker Mayfield, but I see some of that moxie, some of that bravado that Baker Mayfield, you know, had. I saw that in Will Greer, the ability to kind of play off script or off structure, whatever you want to call it when the play breaks down, keeping his head, you know, up the field, looking to make the big play. I saw him being able to structure in the offense that they created for him at a very high level and get the ball out. And you mentioned it earlier in in the podcast. I thought he was much more making his wide receivers look good than vice versa because, you know, we didn't get the chance to talk about David Sills and Gary Jennings, but they're not two guys that Matt and I, you know, have in the top 15 or top 20, I believe, at our wide receiver boards. So, so we were much more in Will Greer was making them look good. I my my one thing about Will Greer was watching him play was sometimes him had to straddle the line between being good aggressive and not being reckless. And to yeah. me, that was his the the thing that was going to make me think that NFL teams are either going to view him as a first round pick or day two pick. And I'm not sure where he's going to go. If there's a surprise quarterback taken at the end of round one, I think it could be Will Greer. But if not, I think he should be taken somewhere early on round two. What is it about his game that you like so much that makes him sit atop your quarterback board? Yeah, he attacks the field. He attacks downfield with no compunction whatsoever when it comes to seeing the open man. He recognizes that very well, and he's pinpoint. I mean, I charted all these guys, and so I'm looking at, you know, deep sideline, which is one of the one of the deeper passes. 45% expected accuracy is what the threshold is. His pinpoint was 42.9, and then he had another 14 you could add on that. That was as good as anybody. Um, deep flat, 55% expected accuracy. You combine his um, you combine his pinpoint in general, he's at 66%. But the deep middle, he was at 75% um, pinpoint accuracy, meaning Bill Walsh would, wouldn't be yelling at Mike Holmgren for praising that type of throw. You know, he would have literally said, that's exactly where the ball needed to be. I don't need to give you a treatise on exactly where the ball needed to be. It was there. Um, vertical, same with the vertical game. Well over 60, he was at 60% in two of the three categories. Um, and he threw 20 vertical sideline passes in that 29 to 42 yard range in the games that I charted. And he was 60% pinpoint accuracy when the expected threshold was 50%. Opposite hash, 100% up the deep sideline on the two passes I saw. That's not many, but it's only 29% expected accuracy on opposite hash throws up the deep sideline. And then you could see things like where he had vertical sideline in that range. He was 60% accurate there with more passes. Um, So you could see he was consistent with his accuracy across the board. He was every bit as accurate in the same tier as you would put Kyler Murray or Dwayne Haskins. And I thought he was better in terms of his uh, in terms of his deep accuracy and he's skilled at being able to find um 
off-platform situations and make throws where he needed to. Now, you're not going to see a huge sample size of that, but you still see the potential there for him to do it. And he does move around the pocket reasonably well. He knows when to throw the ball away a lot of times. He does sometimes get too invested in the plays like you mentioned, um, but he's someone that he brings that he brings that energy to his game because of the fact that he is aggressive, he finds solutions, and he does it in such a quick, confident manner that you can tell that his teammates respond to that confidence. And it and when you can make players who don't use the right hand position well um, to catch the football in tight coverage, and he made a lot of tight coverage throws on deeper throws that like a lot of quarterbacks wouldn't make. And I've heard Chris um, Chris Sims talk about him, uh, an excerpt someone shared with me saying that he loads up a lot and he has to put all his body into the throws. But I didn't think that um, he had to do that as much as it was characterized. Saw a lot of one, three, one, two, and three step drops where he just stuck the end of that drop and fired that ball downfield, pinpoint accurate. So I think he's every bit as good. He would have belonged to me in the first tier of last year's group. And, and, and I think he was every bit as good as a lot of those guys. I had a higher grade from them, Baker Mayfield. That may be more of a, of a reason. That may be more because I probably graded Baker Mayfield a little too low. Um, but um, I would say that even if I graded Baker Mayfield higher in hindsight, he would have been in the same similar tier for me, even if you liked Mayfield's leadership more. Well, I mean, you know what? I mean, you're preaching to the choir when it comes to Will Greer. I mean, as far as I have him, he's number third on my list, and and he really hasn't been he really hasn't been challenged all that much. Um, you know, there were times I was thinking about the Drew Locks of the world. There were times that that was running through my head. But just what you said about Will Greer in general, in terms of his uh, of his play on the field, yeah, it, it, there's it's hard not to see him in the same light. I mean, we could say Baker Mayfield, we can say uh, Doug Flutie. I mean, we can go to Russell Wilson. We can go to that world. Um, it's just hard not to appreciate that style of quarterback when you look at the modern passing game. It's it's just they're just too good of a fit. And I think Kyler Murray again is gonna he'll he'll blow the doors off the handles as we keep going forward. And I think Will Greer was a guy that I would have been excited with as a Giants fan. So I mean. Matt, honestly, as as always, I, I can't thank you enough for really being able to sit down with us and really take us through all of your players and just just going through the processes, just going through the thought the thought experiments that you have to work through in order to create a lot of the charts and and things that you do to to kind of put a framework and a context around these players. I, I think it's it's the reason why the RSP is so well respected in a variety of circles is just simply just because of the passion and, and and thought you put into it, and it comes through every time we talk about it. it, it as always, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much, and I appreciate that. And and I and it's something that means a lot from guys like you because you guys put a lot of work and, and thought into what you do. And, you know, like I talked about before this show, you know, the, the, the skills acquisition series that you did this summer is a great example of that. And, you know, I learn a lot. I got a chance to learn a lot from listening to your guests. And so it's 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 folks like you that when you appreciate something like that, it, it, it means a lot. And I appreciate those who are listening out there and who like for us diving deep like we did. 
Yeah, absolutely. I'll just echo what Matt said. Always a pleasure to have you on the show. I know we talked for close to two hours tonight, and we probably could have talked another two, three, four hours with so many prospects and and go even further detail. It's why we always enjoy having you come back on post draft. Once we get some more land, once we get some landing spots, we can kind of talk about some of the other players that we didn't get a chance to talk about tonight. We can kind of circle back to some of these guys to kind of see where they landed and and what it could potentially mean for their transition to the next, uh, you know, the next phase of their career. So always appreciative of you coming on the show. Looking forward to hopefully getting you back uh, sometime, uh, you know, after the draft as well. After you uh, put out the post RSP, uh, definitely look forward to having you back as well. Thanks again, fellas. Uh, Matt, just let everybody know. I'm sure they know where they can find all your work, but just let everybody know if for some reason they don't purchase the RSP, where they can find that. Uh, you know, let them know about your podcast, the the uh, the RSP videos, and all that stuff. Sure. You know, my first and foremost publication. It's been out. It's a, you know, it's been out since I've been making one since 2006. And you get that post-draft guide along with the pre-draft publication. If you're a fantasy player, you may think, I'll wait till the post-draft. And and it certainly has immediate value. But the the pre-draft actually gives you a lot more meat about these players so that when you're looking at waiver wire trades, players who make different um, end up getting bounced from one team to the other. And, and you hear people in, you know, large in the um, national broadcast media go, who ever heard of this guy? Well, you know, you can you can learn more about these players in depth from the pre-draft. And it gives you, I think, a more pure version of of what you can what these players can and can't do. Um, but the post-draft is great with that. You also get put on my newsletter, which is a monthly newsletter from June through December, um, where I re-rank players um, three past three classes three times during the year and give you updates on how I think the rookies are doing. Um, so you get all of that with the rookie scouting portfolio at mattwaldman.com. You can take a tour and see that. The RSP Film Room is on YouTube. That's the name of the channel. I have lots of great guests. I also do a lot of solo work now, um, just breaking down film, ranging from three to five-minute videos to hour-long deep dives into players. Um, and then there is the RSP Cast, which is a new podcast, about 60 episodes in. It's a little less than a year old. And have a variety of great guests. Hopefully we'll have you guys on very soon. Um, and I talk a lot about the craft of scouting. And that goes behind, you know, understanding technique, concepts, and as well as how we grade players and, and how maybe the NFL grades players and what the differences are. Um, as well as talking about the players in general and giving you some, you know, sneak a peek um, thoughts about those guys. And then, of course, there's the site, mattwaldmanrsp.com, where most of that content is available. You can find all that work and links to all this stuff there. Absolutely, guys. Make sure you are following Matt on Twitter. You're buying the RSP. You're listening to the podcast. You're watching those videos. All so, such great information, learning uh, about evaluating about scouting and understanding these prospects in terms of their strengths, their weaknesses, how they win, how they fit schematically and so much more. Matt, any final parting shots here to close it out? No, I'm just thankful for the fact that I get to do things like this with you guys. And I don't think you meant me. <laughs> <laughs> Other Matt, any final parting shots? Well, no, no, no. I, I'm just excited. I mean, there's a lot of things to be excited for as we get into this kind of tail end of the draft season. And 
really there's a lot on the horizon. I mean, if you get a chance to just kind of kick back and watch some spring games, there's some really great football going on. And I, I think we hear from people all the time. What could you possibly learn from spring games? Actually, it's really some really well vetted and thorough reporting. That's what you can learn from skill from spring games. You could literally not watch anything on the field and you can listen to the reports because they're really well done. I find the commentation in spring games to be the most awesome of the year because there's really a lot of investigative reporting that goes into what happens in the future. And so far, I've never been disappointed. They say a guy's going to start. He's going to start. And I haven't really seen too much of that. So that it's awesome time to just be a fan again and um, just working, working and toiling away and finishing uh, the freshman notebook, which is uh, should be a gold standard by now. I should be having it platinumized because it's been taking so long to get out. So I appreciate everybody's patience on that. But uh, it, it is an exciting time right now. Yeah, absolutely. I'll just echo what Matt just said there. Guys, if you like the work that Matt and I have been doing, please get over to our website, ssfootball.com. Click on that premium content tab for $9.99. You get access to all four notebooks. The scouting notebook, over 100 player profiles, has been out since September, updated and edited daily. More players being added uh, throughout the entire college football season. The rankings notebook is out there with all our different types of rankings and tiers for Devi, for draft eligible based on film. It'll have our dynasty rookie rankings post-draft. And then within the next week or two, our two final notebooks, the freshman notebook that Matt just made mention of with profiles on the top incoming freshmen for your Devi leagues or just for understanding about who these guys are who are about to you know step foot on the college game. And then the final notebook, the draft projections notebook, where I gather from every single resource imaginable, podcasts, written, uh, TV, et cetera, et cetera, how I expect it to go. So you basically will have all our information on what we think of them. And then the draft projection notebook is how I kind of portray it actually happening on draft weekend. Matt always mentions it's the TV guide for draft weekend. It'll have a position for every single tab, offense and defense, notes on over 400 players, their combine measurements and metrics. uh, If they performed at the combine, a tab for who I expect to go in the top 32, the top 100, and then my best guess at every single pick in the NFL draft as well. So you get all four for $9.99. It is the best way uh, to support the show and to help us continue to grow. So on behalf of our special guest, Matt Wallman, on behalf of Matt, on behalf of our sound and tech engineer, David Nakano, and myself, thank you for joining us, and we look forward next time taking you from Saturday to Sunday.